behind every great beer is an even better story. Welcome to the Beer Healer Interviews. My guest today is a pillar of the brewing community in Tasmania and has worked for over a decade in one of the first craft breweries established in the state. Moo Brew appeared in local bottle shops and high-end grocery stores around 2005, selling its flavoursome ales in fancy bottles with labels designed by artist John Kelly. It's fair to say that it was a little bit of a shock to the traditional mainstream drinker in Tassie who was used to picking between the draft beer from either the north or the south end of the state. But somehow it worked and drinkers began to enjoy what a pale ale should be, how a true pilsner tasted and the joys that could be found in a dark ale. That was 15 or so years ago. And since 2013, that little brewery that could has been in the hands of my guest today, General Manager Dave McGill. Dave has been heavily involved in the Aussie brewing industry for many years in many different capacities. Brewer, General Manager and Vice President of the Tassie Independent Brewers Association. So welcome to the Beer Healer Interviews, Dave McGill. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming along, mate. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thanks for bringing the beers in today. As we usually do, let's crack them to start the interview. That's the first time I've cracked one and haven't spilled it all over my recording equipment, so that's a, a good start. Where's my glass over here? Beautiful. Mate, thanks for joining me. I know you're a busy bloke. No, thanks for having me, mate. You're uh, you're currently General Manager at Moo Brew yeah. and you have been for five or so years, but you've been a involved a lot longer than that. So why don't you just give us a quick backtrack on, on what you've been doing in the industry? Yeah, for sure. So uh, Alan Johnson and I used to work in... There, hold on. There's that name again. I think he's every second podcast he gets a name. So those of you playing uh, Owen Johnson podcast bingo out there, you can strike his name off. Sorry, mate, go on. That's exactly right. So uh, yeah, we worked in pubs together for a long time. We also worked security for Marilla Estate when David had just bought it, uh, doing concerts and so forth. So um, OJ came back. Very overqualified and under underemployed, <laughs> um, and David wanted to build a brewery. Um, I came in under age uh, 2006, I think it was. So yep. kind of did my apprenticeship for one of a better word under uh, uh, there at the time. We cracked the first keg of uh, of Moo Pale at the Mayfair Tavern that I was running at the time. Oh, you were involved there, were you? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, Spent yep. many a night there back in my uh, <laughs> earlier years. And um, yeah, so we cracked it there. So I, so I sort of saw the first ever beers roll off the roll off the uh, production line there and then came on board and, and worked there for quite some time and then um, met a lady and uh, <laughs> and I'm originally from Melbourne and uh, a long long time ago and and she moved to uh, Melbourne like everyone in Tassie has to move yeah. to Melbourne at some stage and um, so I, I decided to uh, move over there with her yep. and um, built Temple Brewing for Ron and Renata. Yep. yep. So, uh, yeah, built that brewery from scratch. When we got there, it was an empty warehouse with a Newlands 20-heck brew house tucked away in the corner. And, um, yeah, from cutting drains to, uh, you know, painting walls to uh, putting brew houses into commissioning. Um, Sensational. Yeah, so I did that for a few years. And then, um, yeah, uh, like most people do from Tassie, realised that um, Tassie's better than Melbourne, so they yep. decided to come home. Um, <laughs> so we came home and at that stage, OJ had then taken on uh, a role after a few months with uh, HBA. Yep. And I came on as GM and Hebrewer after that. Ah, oh, right. Oh, yeah. So you were away for quite a while then, weren't uh, you? Just a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 so I left. Uh, I left early, sort of, or May two thousand and ten, I think, and came back, sort of two thousand and twelve, two thousand thirteen. Yep. yep. Yeah. So, um, 
Moobrew has a very celebrated legacy in Tassie and, and prior to the you taking the GM role, which could have been a bit daunting for you to take on, but oh, you could almost argue that the last few years under your leadership has been just as important in terms of Moobrew's ongoing legacy. I mean, you launched the single hot pale ale, yep. uh, the mid-strength, yep. you switched over to cans and implemented a partnership with an up-and-coming distiller by the name of Archie Rose. So... Yeah. Not too bad, mate. You've been pretty busy. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, we sort of saw an organic growth for a long period of time with the start of Moo where the craft beer industry was quite young. Um, it wasn't just in Tassie that it was reasonably young. You know, with Moo, I remember sitting with OJ, drinking a beer, at the, at drinking a Little Creatures and saying, if we can make a pale ale that tastes like this, we would have made it in the craft beer industry. Um, yep. And I still sort of hold on to those kind of things, um, those experiences and drinking those kind of beers. I mean, Brad Rogers, uh, you know, with, the early Matilda Bay stuff, yep. you know, uh, Bark and Duck and Grayston and those kind of beers. I mean, they were really formative for when we were when we were sort of talking about beers. Mountain Goat were uh, another one of those beers. I remember drinking their pale ale when, uh, you know, it looked like they had some uh, hippie from uh, from Rainbow Serpent design their label <laughs> on the pale ale. So, um, yeah, we were, you know, then all of a sudden uh, Moo always sort of did those core styles and, you know, through yep. the art and through John Kelly, we either – paid homage to or took the piss out of um, of core styles and traditional yep, styles, yep. which is something we still do today. Yeah. Um, but we found ourselves not being able to rest on our laurels anymore and having to move um, and move quickly. Um, so cans um, were one of those things that sort of really came about. That really changed your world, have they? For sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, they've made it more accessible. Um, you know, Moobrew for a long time was probably one of the more expensive craft beers around, and yep. now we're probably one of the more accessible ones. We've okay, probably yeah. had a price increase for the last 10 years, I don't oh, reckon. Well. <laughs> um, we've also, you know, we adopted national price strategy and stuff like that, so it's the same price everywhere. Um, but, um, you know, when we sort of developed the can, I had a meeting with David Walsh, who's the owner of Moobrew, and uh, he walked into the meeting and said, I hear you want to put beer in cans? And I said, yes. And he said, so do I. Can I go now? And that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was the extent of our meeting. Um, so we actually uh, we actually had a government grant uh, that we had applied for and um, part of that canning line actually put another two full-time employees on into oh, the brewery as cool. well. So, um, and, you know, uh, we've tapped over 1.7 million cans now through that machine. So, wow. Yeah, so it's That's been awesome. popular. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. For those of you listening that don't know or might have been living under a rock and haven't heard of Mona down here in Tassie, uh, those people probably wouldn't also know that Moo Brew and Mona are actually are actually family. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I assume that that really would open up new worlds or new drinking opportunities for you guys in terms of the people that come and frequent those events and associate the two together. Yeah, for sure. So for a long time when Mona was actually sort of in its early years, uh, we were on site obviously when, uh, when David decided to build Mona. Um, the catalyst for one of our sort of ideas to move was the fact that, um, you know, three and a half thousand people going through a museum every day doesn't make it good for a brewery to be able to operate forklifts and so forth. Um, so yeah, look, when we first sort of said to people in the early days, have you heard of Mona? They're like, oh no, not really. And nowadays when we say, have you heard of Mona? Um, everyone knows where we are and everyone knows where we came from. Um, probably what they don't know. And sometimes what we've struggled to tell story wise is what led Moobrew to be what they are. And that was David's sort of vision as core branding and styling and the art and everything else that we're very consistent in that kind of thing. Yep. And that was probably one of the early sort of um, movements that we had and that correlated really with the attachment of Mona. Yep. Um, so what we see now is obviously everyone going through Mona and Mona being our cellar door, for want of a better word, but then having to, you know, develop a relationship with what is 
uh, motor and, and how um, that sort of ties into where Moo Bruce sits. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Um, so there's Dark Mofo uh, down here in Hobart during the winter and you've just um, had Monophoma in Launceston for the summer, which obviously means plenty of dark ales being uh, consumed down here in the colder months. And this year you made a new, which you've brought along with you today, the new Longneck Lager that you produced for the summer festival in Launceston. How did that all come about? Uh, yeah, so... We've got a new director of comms. Uh, so Mona, David's very keen on internalising a lot of uh, a lot of the work that goes on within Mona, which means we're very lucky to have an internal communication department that we work closely with. Um, and Robbie Bramble, the head of that, uh, came to me and said, "I want to do a Lonnie Longneck Lager." Yep. Um, Robbie comes from um, you know he's got a pretty pretty uh, prestigious background as far as his uh, marketing and so forth. He had no other real sort of uh, terms other than the fact that he wanted a lager that was going to represent what I thought was was, going to go well up in Lonnie and uh, and suit the festival very well. So can I ask you about that? Because I haven't tried it and our mate Will Tatchell tells me I never travel past Ross, so I, you know, <laughs> I haven't been up for the festival. But looking at it, it's, it's old school looking in its, in its labelling. Did you create it to try and attract that old mainstream drinker that might be drinking a Bogues draft up in that part of the world perhaps? Or is it a bit of a new world spin with some dry hopping inside the lager? No, it's very much the, uh, very much the old world sort of style of brewing. Maybe not necessarily... I just wanted to attract everybody that was drinking beer. Um, we very much overcomplicate things nowadays in the craft beer world or the oh, independent brewer. I, I yeah. noticed, yeah. <laughs> um, it was actually quite an enjoyable beer to brew. Uh, everyone of my era, you know, I'm 38 now and – I grew up drinking Bose Premium Cascade Draft. You know, yep. I, I, that's what those were the Same. beers yep. that I grew up and drunk. And um, so they hold a very special place as far as uh, my journey on on moving on to beers. And yep. and I kind of see some of those bigger breweries, and a lot of them are professional colleagues of mine. And um, just because you work for one of the international owned brewing companies doesn't mean you're not capable of making a good beer. Yeah. Um, and it was good to be able to make a beer that didn't have the logistic constraints that the bigger breweries do, which meant I didn't have to pasteurise it. So I oh, kind of made a lager uh, that was pretty subtle um, and without having to pasteurise it, it came out of tank. It was 45 days in tank, so it was a long lager. Yep. Um, so it was a big uh, a big investment as far as time for tank is concerned. But it was also cool to be able to make it and, um, and send it out fresh. And um, so many people told me that it was heaps better than that other Moobrew crap and that it didn't <laughs> smell like flowers. And, well, um, that was backhanded compliment. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, it was um, it was actually a really fun beer to make, and uh, I wanted to. It was important for Mona that Mona Foma worked in Launceston, yeah. so it was also important for us to make a beer that everyone could enjoy. That no one sort of sat down and went. I think the worst thing you can do in the craft beer industry is make people feel intimidated about what they taste, um, yep, and sure. that's something that um, we didn't want to do. So yeah. we just wanted everyone to be able to sit down, and have a beer, and listen to the music, and uh, enjoy it. Happy days from what, and from all reports I've heard, it did exactly that. Now, um, your mid-strength is smack bang in the middle of its second summer. And speaking from personal experience, when a few weeks ago my mates and I we went out for burgers and uh, most of them chose to drink the Moo, Moo Mid, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. Obviously, they were driving. Uh, one bloke did have a little blue Cascade premium light can, so we made, <laughs> made fun of him, we did. Um, 
Do you reckon that Aussies are starting to sort of ditch the those old gold-coloured cans, you know, the ones we're talking about, the mid-strength, yeah. for something with a bit more taste? Do you think we're starting to move that way? Hopefully. Um, I got sort of a little bit over – I do a lot of sailing and uh, obviously I drive everywhere. We live a little bit out of the city. So I sort of wanted a beer that we could all enjoy and still drive on the back yeah. end of it. A lot of the time we go to a pub and uh, you're one pint in and you're uh, an hour of not drinking before you go home. Yeah. Um, it's, it is hard to make a mid-strength beer that is full of flavour and balance it well. Yep. And I think there's a few breweries now that are doing it very well. Um, and I think we're seeing a sort of a push in that category. If I had to sort of pick um, some beers that sort of I'd seen move from some of the sort of more prominent craft breweries around at Australia at the moment, um, you know, one of which is Captain Sensible, which actually made it into the Hottest 100 this yeah, year. Awesome. So yeah, great. Yeah. That's probably one of the first mid-strengths to make it in, yep. um, which is fantastic. Um, um, from Balta. So, yeah, look, I think um, I think once brewers get a handle on being able to balance, obviously the lack of sugar that you have when you're making um, a mid-strength beer then makes it harder to balance with the amount of hop that you want to put into it. So once you can sort of develop that crystal malt and the pale malt sort of backbone, balance it with the hops, then um, you're onto a good thing, I think. Yeah, I've heard so many brewers say that to me because, I mean, I'm a big fan of the mid-strength beer because, you know, I've got kids, I've got to draw all those things that we spoke about. And every time I talk to brewers about it, I say, it's actually a really, really difficult beer to, to make. I know I've, I've failed miserably in my home brew <laughs> of trying to do <laughs> one, but so when you when you get onto one, it's an absolute ripper, I reckon. And, yeah, look, I've drunk many of yours and, and it's now my friends who used to be those mainstream drinkers drinking those Cascade Drafts or whatever who have now got kids. They grew up on those mainstream beers and now they're starting to switch over to something that's got a bit more flavour. It's it's as a craft beer lover, it was really pr- pleasing to see that night. Absolutely. We should pay homage to uh, a beer that Moobra used to brew called Belgio, um, yes. which is a Belgian-style pale ale, uh, which, again, if anyone's out there is playing uh, Owen Johnston bingo, <laughs> um, that was one of his recipes that was a little bit misunderstood, I, print, I think, and um, we actually, I actually derived a lot of inspiration from the yep. malt bill of that beer, yep. um, changed the yeast strain, and, um, and sort of then sort of tweaked the mid-strength to become um, a recarnation of that. That kind of uh, style. Oh, nice, nice, mate! It's a ripper. Um, look, I was listening to uh, my friends Pia Poynton and Steve Blaine from the Good Beer Project podcast. You might know those guys, and they were talking about the concept of core lineups and how, in in this current market, drinkers and and breweries are the like are getting pretty bored um, with having that core lineup and sort of chasing those weird and wonderful beers. And many brewers are just pretty much shying away from using those words. How do you feel about the whole concept of a core lineup in the current climate? Because it's been pretty successful for you guys at Moo. For sure. Um, so originally when Moo Brew started, John Kelly did all our artwork. Yep. So we had six paintings, so we did six beers. Um, <laughs> Easy. Uh, now we're um, we will always hold on tightly to that core range. I believe that if you see – there's a lot of noise in the craft beer industry about a lot of um, very small breweries with not a lot of capital expenditure. The 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 way in the entry into the market is a lot easier nowadays. Um, so it's easier to brew and sell out of everything if you're making a thousand liters. Some of the core styles of the bigger breweries now in the craft sector, um, you know, Stonewood, Goat, Bolter, yep. Four Pines, have all got core ranges in their products, and then they all do side projects off the side. Yeah. Um, I feel that beer drinkers generally as a rule always want to be able to turn around and you need to be able to do it. If you're going to a bottle shop and you're going to pay $26 for a six pack or $20 for a six pack, it needs to taste and be the same as the last time you paid that. 
Absolutely. There's a lot of yep. drinkers out there at the moment. We've converted all the craft beer nerds within Australia. Now the growth of the Australian craft beer sector lies within those mainstream drinkers that have been very used to drinking uh, consistent beers yes. for a long period of time. And um, I think that the, we need to really represent that within the craft sector and not just hide behind the fact that it is craft. Therefore, there is going to be a variance. No, I agree. I agree. I've got another beer marketing question for you. Uh, so Moo have never really prescribed to using the crazy names with their beers, you know, preferring to go with the beer styles, like we're drinking the Hef right now. Um, are you ever going to break the mould and just produce the ultimate pun-driven beer at some stage? Well, the Lonnie Lonnie Lager was probably most of uh, – it was close to pun. Um, I don't know if we ever will. Every time we just um, have – we've actually just put a single brew length tank in, so we'll probably do sort of maybe six small batch releases oh, this year, yeah, which would be cool. Yep. Um, but that'll be good to do. We're going to do an IPA for the Brewers Feast uh, in February in Melbourne, and that's going to be called Moo Brew IPA. Is that similar to the one that was down here in Hobart? It is very rooms? similar. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you never were going to do an IPA, you guys. Everyone says that. That was the beer that I was never going to do. The only way I would do that beer is if we can sell it very quickly. I don't believe that IPAs should be drunk too far away Fresh from the brew. What's your, what's your thought on the number of days? I reckon anything over a month, in yep. if it's been looked after well, anything over a month and you're probably scratching. Okay. Yeah. yeah uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of resin and and so forth that sort of hangs around in IPAs afterwards, and it still tastes nice and bitter and so forth. But yeah. um, when you drink a good IPA that's fresh um, and been well looked after, um, it's um, it's a it's an experience, and I think we probably lack that within IPAs at the moment. I, I must admit, I had that uh, down at Ben Hickey's Whaler down here in Salamanca, mm-hmm. and it was. Pretty bloody good. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. I was happy with that. <laughs> well, uh, he's one of my best mates, so he gets the uh, freshest. <laughs> no, no, that's great. Anything from me, I yeah. loved it though. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, you know, he's a good bloke. Um, look, it'd be remiss of me to get you in here and not and not uh, mention your dark beers. I was doing some research during the week and I was looking around, you know, for what people have been talking about as far as dark beers and how they love them. And Moobrew Dark has been described by the Crafty Pint as a a masterclass in the art of balance. I'm slightly more eloquent. I just think it's fucking awesome. <laughs> Yeah, um, but seriously, you, you do do it well, and your seasonal stouts are always highly sought after, which we've got uh, the Archie Rose here. You know, I previously mentioned you know, the whole Archie Rose thing for the special edition. It's awesome, and it's something a little bit new for you, which I, I find really cool. Do you think that you just that's what you want to be known for down here, is these specialty dark beers moving forward? Yeah, look, um, those dark beers have been um, something that we've sort of worked on over a long period of time. I know the dark ale recipe when we first saw it was only going to be um, from Oge was only going to be a, uh, a limited release and then it was so popular. Um, I have tweaked that beer. Um, the other thing you got to remember with some of Moobery's recipes are that they're the best part of, you know, 13 years old now. So yeah. we've seen in the agricultural side of brewing in, in the hops and so forth, we've seen a massive change yep. and in that. So that w- some of the hops when we designed these beers uh, weren't available that they are now, Um, things like mosaic and stuff like that. So um, we have tweaked the darks a little bit. Um, I think we're very lucky that obviously there's only been two head brewers and general managers in 13 years of of Moobrew. So um, a lot of those recipes and the processes in which – those recipes come about, I think we're very lucky that they're very still close to the people that have been around for a while. Yep. Um, so 
I think, yeah, look, the dark beers, the stout has been a recipe that has never changed. Oh, really? Um, never. No, not when since. When you're on a good thing, you stick yeah, to it, that's right. say, it's, yeah. uh, It was brewed once in about 2007. Uh, the barrel A version came about when Brad Rogers came down and gave us the heads up that beer picks up oak quicker than wine. Um, oh. So he actually came down and sort of gave us the heads up about um, how long to keep the Moobrew stout in barrel form, yep. um, which was amazing. And um, so we've we've played with that. And the Archie Rose collaboration gave us another another it's a great beer to be able to base um because it's such a big beer yeah it's a great beer to be able to base some good barrel aging programs off for sure how did the archie rose uh relationship come about I think it was actually two of our marketing crew uh, uh-huh. that were pretty keen to try and do something yep then I ended up speaking to the head distiller Dave yep. from Archie Rose and Archie Rose really came to the party. Um, they they're kind re- of the cool kids in town. Yeah. In town, aren't they? yeah. They're very much um, known for their gin as well, yeah. um, which a lot of distilleries are at the present yeah. time. Um, but they also have um, – they also do a really dark wash, which um, we used to make a lot of whiskey wash at Moobrew for a lot of the Tasmanian distillers. Yeah. And I've never seen the amount of chocolate malt used in a, in a wash before. Oh, really? So it was kind of cool. Um, so it was good to go over there and sort of learn how they do it. Um, they were super keen to send their barrels back down. Those barrels were sort of brought in from the US as bourbon barrels. They were put together at Taz Cars Company and recoupered. They yep. were sent to um, Sydney. They had whiskey aged them in Sydney. They got sent back to us. We obviously aged um, the stout in them. We then sent them back um, to Archie Rose and then they filled them with uh, new make spirit. So we actually have another 10 of those barrels sitting in the brewery at the moment oh, okay. that have actually come back. So they're probably some of the most well-travelled barrels. So uh, how does that work? Is it your beer was in them and then it goes back to them to put a spirit into them again. So will that pick up anything from the yeah. Beer and just sort of like keeps going on. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So I reckon we're, they're actually going to be aged uh, in the barrel room at Mona. So they're actually oh, out sweet. of bond um, and they'll be uh, on display probably in February. And we'll, I don't know, we'll let them sit for maybe seven or eight years and get Dave the distiller down and uh, and we that. can have a look at them and see what, what kind of. Um, and they were very adamant about the time frame. So we managed to, they're only empty for two days. So the Archie Roast out went in at 8% and came out at 108 so there was a fair bit of devil share kicking around. Yeah. It. Um, so it was good that um, the beer was big enough to ha- carry that kind of uh, whiskey volume. Yeah. So this is this year's version. Are you going to continue to do it in the same way or is it going to be that back and forth type? I think so, yeah. We'll, we'll see how their barrel program works out in timing with us. Um, hopefully this year I actually might try and put some of our – so we have uh, three 500-litre barrels, so two American and one French oak that we've yep. always done yep. the Imperial Stout with. Yep. Um, so hopefully we actually might be able to age some of the already barrel-aged stout within the whiskey barrels because I feel that um, some of the vanilla and some of the body that we get from the barrels picked up would be really cool to see what happens when it yep. goes into the whiskey barrels. But if you need a tester, I've got a little 20 litre barrel at home which we can fill Excellent. Like. <laughs> Easy done. <laughs> I've got a mate, Scotty Quinn, who runs a cooperage. I think it might be the same one down here and he said, do you want to try try it? So it's maybe this little 20 litre barrel. Awesome. So yeah, I've yeah. just got to learn how to put a decent beer in it yet. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> we'll be uh, more than keen. Yeah, nice. So no, again, so for those that don't know, your brewery is owned by a very famous and creative thinking entrepreneur. Have you ever asked him to apply his creative thinking to the problem of paying through the nose for freight to get your beer off the island? It's tough, <laughs> isn't it? It is tough. Uh, it's the it's one of the toughest things we face, actually. I mean, we're you know um, we're probably forty or fifty dollars a keg behind most of the mainland breweries. By the time we get it to Melbourne, even yeah. um, we also do. Um, 
choose to cold freight it the entire way across. Nice. Um, so yep. it could be a bit cheaper if we didn't decide yep. to do that. Um, no, David uh, David probably um, would turn around and go, well, that's your problem, not mine. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> Thanks, mate. That, that being David would probably be the conversation we would have about that, I think. Um, look, it's one of those problems. A good friend of mine um, often says that freight, excise, and those kind of things that come along with beer um, need to be built into your business model in order for your business to succeed. Good They're advice. not surprises. Um, they are what they are. Yeah. Um, so you need to make sure that you can de- either demand the price when it gets to the other end or at least absorb that in some level um, because everyone else is. So that's, you know, in my time as GM and, and head brewer, we've seen the landscape become a lot more competitive yeah. um, and um, people are very colloquial. They're very passionate about local breweries and we're seeing now Sydney especially especially a lot of the breweries in Sydney now are popping up in yep. the suburbs. Um, you know, they're probably a couple of years behind Melbourne. Sydney five or 10 years ago was a barren wasteland for craft beer. Yeah. And, and now it's, um, it's probably given Melbourne a nudge. Yeah. yeah. It's really starting to copy that American model where it's like hyper local in, in a way that, you yeah. know, I want to, I want to go and drink around the corner at the local brewery. For sure. And look, you know, people like young Henry's and stuff started yep. that kind of thing. And now Wayward and those kind of guys that are yep. in those sort of um, more satellite suburbs and they've got the popularity, the, the population density to be able to do that as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, they've got the population of Hobart living around their oh, brewery. Exactly. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They would, yeah. Look, we we actually recently as well signed with a distributor uh, that takes us nationwide. So uh, we've had uh, we we still have a direct representation in Victoria and New South Wales. Yep. So we have uh, direct reps there, um, but we now have a national distributor that takes our national sort of our product, our package product nationwide. Um, that's also a little bit scary when that kind of thing happens because obviously the further away from the brewery it goes, the less control you have over what happens. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've had people that have had Moo Brew in cans and, you know, it's in Darwin and, and places like that. So oh, nice. it is cool. So Cold it's, chain it, logistics from Hobart to Darwin. Uh, yeah, so wow. – whether or not that's cold chain, once it leaves our cold chain, right. that is the biggest yep. problem. Yeah, so, yeah, and that's something yeah. that the craft beer industry will face full stop is what happens once it leaves. So obviously if you go into Dan Murphy's, which we all are, yep. um, it's not cold chain in Dan Murphy's. Nah. So yep. all you can do is sort of make sure that it's as cold for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but then once it goes in there, um, it's uh, yeah up to the brewing gods as to what happens after. Cross your fingers that it's, that's that it's right. purchased quickly. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, um, this isn't a slight on your beers because we've already established that, you know how good they are, but due to the fact that you're based in Tasmania, you have to deal with natural geographic obstacles and you guys are, let's call you an older brewery, uh, and you don't chase those headline-grabbing social media feed filling you know, weird and wonderful sort of brews. Is it difficult for you guys to remain... Uh, relevant in the current climate, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's not a slight at all. It's um, it's indicative of the craft beer hottest one hundred. We didn't make it in. Um, no, no Tassie beers at all this no, year. No Tassie beers. In the no, no, no. That's a bit disappointing. No. So, um, one of those um questions is derived. Well, it's raised every single time I have a chat with my marketing department. Pretty much. Yep. Um, We've always had the intention to make the best beer we possibly can. Um, in the best circumstances we can and then deliver it to the punter in the best way it can possibly be. Um, Having said that, 
we are now actively trying to make that move into becoming the relevant sort of thing because we were very relevant in the first sort of five yeah. years, the bottle shape and the artwork and everything like that. I think the phrase is that you still get like dog's nuts. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Um, so it's not something that's lost on us. It's not something I'm probably going to lose a great deal of sleep over, not making the hottest 100 as no. far as that kind of stuff's no, no, concerned. Okay. Um, but having said that, um, it is definitely something that we need to work very hard in order to maintain that relevance because yeah. that relevance gets blurred. There's now 600, I think, craft breweries oh, in massive, Australia or something yeah. like that. So, um, And a lot of those craft breweries now are taking up spaces where I always believe that breweries have a very significant sense of place where people come and enjoy beers and yep. therefore it's easy to drive a relationship with a brewery that you have direct contact with. Yep. So if you go to yep. the brew pub or you go to the brewery or you know someone that works there, it's easy to get hold of that relationship. And within Tasmania – Obviously, it's very difficult, and we are probably very lucky that a lot of international and national tourists come, interstate tourists come to actually see Mona. So we're probably one of the lucky ones that has that access to the interstate and international sort of market. absolutely, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's definitely um, a struggle to maintain relevance um, in what is a very noisy industry at the present time. Yeah, but I think on the other hand too that, you know, Quite often chasing those short-lived opportunities of the creating a NEPA or whatever a case may be is something that the people that don't have maybe a more established tap room, like you guys have got pretty much the ultimate tap room there that allows you to, as you said, access those new drinkers. So maybe those short-lived opportunities that need to be able to create a buzz to get people to start to buy those beers in the smaller places, maybe you don't need that as much anymore. No, no, for sure. We, having said that, we did actually then just install that single brew land tank. We will now, the biggest concern with- You're going to brew a NEPA, aren't you? That's what the market team have well, well, we'll see. I said I, never, I, said I was never going to brew an IPA. Um, but um, I think um, what we will do, and every time someone sees a release from Moobrew, it needs to be of what Moobrew's standard is. Yes. So I think it's very hard for us to be able to produce a beer that's not of the standard that Moobrew is. So yep. it's sort of um, – I'm lucky that the team that, that sort of brews with me uh, are exceptionally good at what they do um, and we have access to some, uh, some good solid equipment. Yep. So um, I think it's kind of a little bit scary when, when we say we're going to release another six beers this year. Yep. Because that nearly doubles what we've released, you know, <laughs> in the in the core range. Um, but having said that, I will not release a beer unless I'm 110 percent happy with what happens. So yeah. and how that beer sort of presents. So yep. we did we did a Dunkelweiss recently, which was my recipe, which came out um, a little bit off, um, and, and it never got released. Yep, um, got drank a lot of uh, staff barbecues <laughs> and so forth. But it's one of those things where we don't need to. Um, it's never been part of Moobrew's mandate to release a beer. That that the people involved aren't 110% happy yep. with. So, um, yeah, I kind of feel that we're always sort of learning and, um, you know, the knowledge is sort of always out there. It's just a matter of harnessing that and making sure. And I think that's where the craft beer industry really needs to lock in um, and they need to make sure that they're forever evolving and learning and making sure that the, the limited release beers, even though they are limited, need to be um, need to be really good. Yeah. Otherwise, we're, um, if that's the first beer that someone who normally drinks a mainstream beer, if it's the first beer they drink because they're not aware of where it comes from or how it was brewed yep. and it's not a good beer, um, yep. we just lost another punter. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Now, I'm looking across the table at you, and I'm, I'm actually older than you, so young son. Uh, <laughs> I, I can see there's a few greys yeah. in that uh, very, very strong beard game you got going on there. As a 
you know, you've been you've got a lot of experience. You're a bit of an elder statesman around the place. How do you pay it forward to those young brewers and young breweries starting up these days? For sure, I think um, I think it's it, that's a really good question. I'm uh, probably going to struggle Thanks, to answer. I thought of it just then, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to struggle to answer that a little bit. I think um, a couple of uh, a couple of the guys that work for me, or actually all the guys that work for me, are, are much younger than yep. what I am. Um, we are now seeing a generation of people exposed to beer that never saw the other years of brewing, you yep. know, never saw the Bose Premium and Cascade Draft and all those beers were never, uh, were never what they drank, you know. So we're seeing now um, people come in with a lot more expectation. So the only thing that I can sort of do to pay it forward, there is some pretty fundamental practices within brewing to make a good beer and yep. that is be very humble on what has come before you and make sure that you can keep everything as clean as you possibly can. And if you are going to change things, only change one thing at a time so is that if you do actually get a success, you know what actually made that success. Do you know who you sound like right now? <laughs> Scott Overdorf. Yeah. <laughs> Him and I worked together for a yeah, long time. And he said the exact same thing, just change one thing each time. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of those things where we live in now in this brewing world where Double upside down, sideways, quadruple IPAs infused yeah. with lemongrass and pineapple are a good thing. They are a good thing, providing that the base beer that they are actually brewed from is faultless. Yep. Um, providing that that beer gets to the consumer without a high level of oxygen uh, content, you know, so no DO, and it gets to the brewer, or it gets to the, the punter in a way that um, it leaves the brewery. And that's really difficult, I think, in the modern day with things like contract canning and that kind of stuff. We're seeing um, we're seeing a lot of beers accessible that um, have some amazing background, but maybe the, the core principles of brewing that we're losing um, a little bit uh, probably uh, need to be addressed a little bit more. What about the education, hey? Mm, very now much we, so. We've got a, uh, a question sent in from one of our listeners. Excellent. So Will from Evandale says, uh, <laughs> you've been a brewer for quite a while now and you must know everything about brewing quality beer. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, Will. That's uh, definitely a fair assessment. Uh, I've forgotten more about it than you know, mate. So uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, look, Will and I have worked together for a really long time. I actually um, – and it was funny, we actually sort of, our breweries couldn't be far further apart really um, yeah. in in some respects and couldn't be closer in others. Um, Will has harnessed the area around him um, and has made a, a direct contact with the land and grown his own hops and moulded his own barley. And um, for myself and a lot of other brewers that we sort of, uh, who are close personal friends of mine, Brad Rogers included, um, it's really humbling to see what he's doing. So yep. um, I think that's, um, that's fantastic. And uh, the whole while both Will and I have numerous conversations normally in the dark hours of the evening uh, <laughs> over the consistency of beer and that's yeah. something that he works really hard for yes. and uh, in the environment that he's undertaken with um, with the whole farm you know paddock to plate sort of sort of situation yep. that's um, something that um, he's excelled at I think and something that actually he works really hard for yeah it's interesting you were talking earlier about the Beljo sort of a deriv- derivative of that becoming your mid-strength beer and Will's just recently created his table beers and, yes. and they're sort of Beljo 
Joe-inspired too, aren't they? They really? are. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we obviously went up uh, to Queensland recently for uh, the Stone of Wood um, sort of family gathering yep. and, and Will was part of that. And um, we saw those early and late beers and I think that's an amazing concept. Um, yeah, and yeah. one of which, you know, that I think maybe probably Ben from Bridge Road is probably doing something with yep. the Mayday Hill sort Another of side of things. Another too, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, very yeah, much yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And I think that's where... Um, that path that they're taking is a difficult path and um, and they're not shying away from it. So, no. um, yeah, I think they're doing a really good job. Yeah, but, hey, this is not the Rule Tatchell podcast, so no. enough about him. <laughs> you can get him down. <laughs> Just don't go north of Ross and you'll be no, right. I'll be all good. <laughs> um, so, I, look, in my opinion, what you and your predecessors have built at Moobrew is absolutely fantastic. If you were to leave Moobrew tomorrow, what would be the one thing that you're most proud of? Oh, probably the culture, I think. I think nice. um, the fact that uh, I could probably leave, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow and Moobrew wouldn't miss a beat, I think. Um, Seriously? 100%. Yeah, look, there, there's probably, um, there's probably you know, some of the uh, – some of the face of um, being able to, you know, walk into a room and talk some smack on a podcast for uh, <laughs> enough time that it probably take them a little bit to get hold of. Yeah, yeah. But um, I know that the team behind me, not only the brewing team but everyone else that works there, um, you know, they would uh, be able, they understand what Moobrew is and, and where it came from and um, I'd have no qualms with uh, leaving those guys and girls with it. Nice, nice. Well, as I pour the remainder of my Hefeweizen into my – Glass here. It's time for the fast five. Are you up for it? Oh, excellent. I didn't even know there was a fast five. Didn't you? Oh, yeah. Excellent. Here we well, go. Well, thanks for never having listened to my podcast. Because oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's in every fucking one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. I don't care if you're up for it or not. After that, here we go. <laughs> it's in. Has beer ever led you astray? Yes. Do you, are you allowed to give me details? Uh, yeah, it almost cost me a relationship uh, with my current wife after drinking 10 pints of Moobra Imperial Stout and thinking it was a good idea to try and find her house in the middle of Melbourne um, and thinking I snuck in. And when you're six foot four and 110 kilos, mate, you don't sneak, you don't anywhere. sneak anywhere. No, <laughs> And she's a lawyer and she had court the next day. And uh, yeah, it cost me a pretty nice watch, that one. Oh, jeez. We've, we've all been there, don't yeah. we, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who's the most famous person you've ever shared a beer with? Wow. Fast five. Um, I don't know. I, uh, David Walsh. David Walsh, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> there you go, there you go. Um, what's beer done for you that nothing else in your life has? Uh, giving me a direction for both what I feel probably the artistic side of me, which I have the artistic ability of a dead rat, um, <laughs> and also giving me a, an ability to be able to pass that on to people that I care about and uh, some of the people that work for me, for sure. Nice, nice. What's the, uh, the best beer experience you've ever enjoyed? Best beer experience I've ever enjoyed would be... A cascade draft after a yacht waste that had been rolling around in the bottom of someone's tinny that threw to the boat um, <laughs> and we drank it. And that would probably be the best beer experience I've ever had. Warm and half fizzy. Uh, we're at the end of the time, but we can keep keep going. I, I tend to agree with you. It doesn't matter really about it. It's got to be a good beer in my opinion, but I think sometimes who you're having it with and where you're having it is just as important. Mm-hmm. I think, I, again, not to mention Will Tatchell, but he climbed a bloody mountain and drank a, a singer or something like that. Yeah, I recently did drink uh, uh, the Creek in Cantillon Brewery in, um, <sighs> in Belgium, so that probably yeah. should be the one with that's my wife too. So, yeah, let's let's pull that one actually. Let's scrap the uh, Cascade Drive. <laughs> I was at Trillium recently drinking uh, Trillium beers with my wife and I actually got my wife to try a uh, wild ferment 
Chardonnay and Voynier, two beers. Wow. She doesn't drink beer and she drank both those and loved them. So for me, that's excellent. That was so great. Yeah. So great. <laughs> What's the most important thing you've learned in your journey? Keep it clean, keep it simple, and make sure that you learn all the time. Nice, nice. And being that you couldn't name the most famous person that you've had a beer with, I'm pretty sure you're not going to be able to help me get Chris Hemsworth on this podcast, are you? No, 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 no but we can have a crack at it, surely. We'll try. I'm still going to keep plugging away. I think I'm <laughs> 19 episodes in and I'm still struggling, but we'll keep going. <laughs> well, mate, it's been a pleasure having you in here today. Uh, thanks for bringing the beers in. I'm going to enjoy that Archie Rose. I think that might uh, be one that I might share with my old man, do you think? Excellent, yeah. How long should I sell her it for? Mate, I reckon it's good for uh, anywhere between five to seven, I reckon. Oh, really? Properly. Easily. Yeah, it's a big beer. It's massive. Yeah, maybe on yeah. your 75th birthday. Yeah. An absolute treat. Fantastic. Cheers. All right, mate. Cheers, Cheers mate. to great beers. Thank you. Good on Cheers. you. Thanks for tuning in to another Beer Healer interview. I really hope you guys enjoyed the episode as much as I did. If you want to follow along with more Beer Healer content, you can check out my Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram pages. Just search Beer Healer or you can visit beerhealer.com. If you like the podcast, can you please help me spread the word by subscribing and rating it and sharing it with your beer-loving friends?